Evidence and Answers. Dr. Oz Guinness states that modernity has done more damage to the church than all the persecutions in church history. The church must face the lethal distortions that are caused by modernity. What are the ideologies of modernity? How can we recognize the effects of modernity on the church? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Sukren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Sukren. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme is Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear the entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Guinness with part one of his message entitled, The Challenge of Modernity. There's a wonderful story of Winston Churchill. One day he had a magnificent meal, and he went into the House of Commons and put his feet up on the dispatch box and closed his eyes to have a nap. And there was a socialist MP droning on with a long speech the other side, and he saw the famous prime minister having a nap. And he stopped and he said, Must the honorable prime minister sleep every time I speak? Churchill opened one eye and said, No, I assure you it's entirely voluntary. (laughs) I think some of you must feel like that tonight. I do as a speaker. This is a... 1.15 1.15 in the morning for me at the moment. But three sessions like this on the trot, you're to be admired. Let me take the discussion one further. And I want to talk now about the challenges facing the church in the advanced modern era. A few years ago, I was in Shanghai at a business conference at the university. And at the end of the conference, I walked back from the banqueting hall with the dean of the university to the lecture hall. And as we were going along, he said, may I ask you a question I wouldn't ask in public? He said, we in China are fascinated with the Christian roots of your Western past for the sake of China's future. But you in the West are cutting off your roots. What am I missing? I had to say to him, you aren't missing anything. As I said earlier, we have Greek roots, Roman roots, but the decisive roots of the West are Jewish and Christian, as I was arguing. And today we are a cut flower civilization. You can put fancy words on that. It's called a crisis of cultural authority. In other words, a civilization which had beliefs and ideas which made it great is cutting them. We're in a post-Christian age. We're not non-Christian yet. This is not a non-Christian society or a pagan society, but it's certainly post-Christian, and it won't stay post-Christian forever. We're a cut flower civilization. But I want to argue tonight that many Christians make a mistake in thinking that the only problem we face are false ideas. And I want to say, no, the challenge is much, much greater than just ideas. But we'll come to that. First, we need to face up to the lethal distortions of the faith in the modern world. A number of years ago, there was a Lausanne Congress in Manila. And I was given 
the task of speaking on mission and modernity. And I was given 17 minutes. The next Lausanne Congress, I was given the topic of truth and given nine minutes, getting more and more soundbite-like. Anyway, I did my best in 17 minutes, and most people had never thought about mission and modernity at all. When I finished, I went out in the foyer, and a lady was outside, and she said, I didn't hear everything you said, and I didn't understand everything I heard. But I have a question for you. Why do they ask a man to speak on maternity? <laughs> she hadn't got the point at all. Now, everybody knows what maternity is. It's the whole kit and caboodle, the whole constellation to do with motherhood. And in the same way, modernity, which a lot of people get really puzzled by, it's just the whole constellation of things surrounding the modern world. But here's the point. It's much more than ideas. We're facing a lot of dangerous, hostile ideas. False tolerance, the pad opened up so well or relativism, or secularism, postmodernism. Those are all ideas. The things that ends with ISM are just ideas. And of course, with a set of ideas, if someone's a modernist, or a postmodernist, or a secularist, or a relativist, and you argue them out of it, they can leave having coffee with you, and they're a convert to your position, and they've changed their minds completely. But you notice modernity is I-T-Y, not I-S-M. The whole kit and caboodle surrounding the modern world, which includes cell phones, cars, televisions, satellites, you name it, the whole lot. You may not like it, but you can't change your mind and it would disappear. It's unthinkable that modernity will disappear short of a nuclear disaster of global proportions or the Lord's return. It's with us. If we in the West don't like it, the Chinese will be more than happy to take over the leadership of the world. They often say today, it's our turn now. And you can see there being serious rivals, and the Indians would like to, and so on. In other words, on many of these things, if we don't do it, someone else will do it. You can't wave your fingers, flick your fingers, and get rid of modernity. It's much tougher than that, and it's much bigger than ideas. So first, we have to face up to the lethal distortions of modernity of faith. I would argue very seriously, modernity has done more damage to the church than all the persecutors in history put together. Now, this is a big discussion. We haven't got that much time. Let me just mention three areas. And you ask whether you can see some of these distortions in the churches across America that you know. I'm not talking about this church, obviously I don't know it, but many of the churches, not only in America, but in Europe too. The first is this, and notice with each of these distortions, they're not inevitable. If you recognize it, you can resist it. But of course, if you don't recognize it, you're in the world and of it, you can't resist it. It shapes you without your being aware of it, like a fish in water, and so on. Take the first one. Modernity tends to shift us from a stance of authority to a stance of preference. You don't need to think very long to think that as followers of Jesus, we are under His authority. Now, in fact, that's common to all the three Abrahamic families of faiths. The Jews, with their understanding of God and the Torah, are under the authority of the Torah. 
We as followers of Jesus are under the authority of Jesus. My Lord and my God, Thomas says. We say, Jesus is Lord. You remember John R. Mott, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We're under his authority. What he says, we trust. What he commands, we obey. We don't trust Jesus because of the Scriptures. We trust the Scriptures because of Jesus. He put his stamp on the Scriptures. It is written, it is written, and in many, many other ways. His authority as Lord is supreme, and we're under authority. Now, the modern world undermines that. Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, called that the abiding address of faith. The Bible teaches something, we believe it, and it binds our behavior. So there's a link between belief and behavior. That's authority. Well, what is it in our modern world that erodes that? Well, just take one, maybe the dominant one, consumerism. The essence of our modern world is choice and change, and nowhere more than in our consumer world, the supermarket, the shopping mall, the supermarket. Now, here's the point. Where everything's choice and everything's change, everything eventually becomes your preference. Because we have such incredible choice that what matters is not what you choose, but the fact you're free to choose, the choosing rather than the chosen thing. So you don't think, is this right, wrong, true, false, whatever? It's just a matter of choice. That's the subtlety of the abortion position, pro-choice. You're attacking something fundamental at the very heart of modern society, the freedom to choose, and so on. Well, the point is, if you have a hundred cereals, or a thousand relationships, or a hundred possible people you might marry, and a thousand possible faiths you might believe, everything at the end of the day becomes a matter of choice and preference. The church of your choice, consumer-wise, the music's too stuffy, it's, it's too contemporary and noisy. The sermons, are, they're too short, they're too trendy, they're too... You go down a smurgos board, you don't like cabbage, choose lettuce. You don't like radishes? Choose carrots, everything. You know, one man said to me, everyone chooses love on their plate, but hell, hell no. Well, people just choose not to have. You can choose today. Everything's picking the church of your choice, and so on. Everything's choice. Well, when that happens, you have a crisis of authority. I would never have believed that we can see young evangelicals today. Jesus is no longer the way, the truth, the life, the way. And you can see people treating the Scriptures like a rubber nose that they can pull any direction they want. And you can see, I won't mention names, but the young evangelicals justifying through the Scriptures their view, say, of gay lifestyle. Gay theologians don't believe the Scriptures is very congenial to homosexuality. Certainly the Orthodox never have, but young evangelicals do, following many liberals who do. And you can see everything becomes a matter of genial choice today. So evangelicalism has lost authority, and that's a very, very serious thing. Or take a second thing that comes with modernity. Modernity shifts us, and remember each time, it's not inevitable. If you recognize it, you can resist it. It's not fatalistic, but you've got to recognize it. Second thing that happens is shifts us from integration to 
fragmentation. If Jesus is Lord of all, he's Lord of everything. You remember Moses, he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, all right, the men, not very far. And Moses says, everyone. And at one point he says, not a hoof must be left behind. All of us and everything we have, because the Lord of all has called us out. And that's natural to the Bible. Jesus is Lord of everything. Again, the Jews and even the Muslims believe that. For the Jews, you integrate life under the Torah. For the Muslims, you try and integrate life under the Quran or the Sharia. For Christians, we integrate life under the Scriptures and under the Lordship of Jesus. But what does the modern world do? Well, it produces fragmentation. The technical word here, don't bother about the technical word, it's called differentiation. The modern world throws up all sorts of different spheres of life which are all different in their way. Now, let's be practical. My wife comes from L.A., one time I was teaching in L.A. with her at a very famous church there where President Reagan went for a while. And I was trying to get them to see the world in which they were living. Many people in the Sunday school, the adult Sunday school I was teaching, they traveled 75 miles to church. And the next day they drive 100 miles to work. Think nothing of it. And then you think where they went to the beach or where they went to the cinema or where they went to a sports game or whatever. L.A., a huge, sprawling metropolis, connected only by freeways and cars. And many people live a very fragmented life. And where they live and where they worship and where they work, hundreds of miles apart. And their worlds become fragmented. And without realizing it, they tend to live different ways in different places, in a fragmented way, which is our postmodern world. That was the reason in the 1960s a famous Californian historian commented that Californian churches were privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. They lived here as Christians, but there they went. They were like Northrop Grumman or wherever they were. You know, they just lived in terms of the different spheres they were in. And the Lordship of Christ didn't run everywhere. And that's incredibly damaging. It means the salt isn't salty. The light isn't shining as it should do in every area if we live in a fragmented lifestyle. And that's true. I mentioned your Hawaiian Christians who don't vote. That's a tragedy and a scandal and a sin for responsible citizenship. But they do something here. They do it a different way. There, we should be consistently under the Lordship of Christ everywhere. Calling means everyone, everywhere, in everything. And that was the heart of the Reformation. How about the third little distortion? Our modern world tends to shift us, and I hinted at this in the first talk, from the supernatural to the secular. The modern world is described as a world without windows. As I said earlier, in the traditional world, the unseen was not unreal. Take, say, Elisha, praying that his servant's eyes will be opened, that he'll see. And what does he see? Balls and chariots of fire all around them. Daniel knows the angel princes of Persia and Babylon and so on. We know in the Scriptures there's another dimension. Our Lord delivers people from evil spirits. He discerns the heart of things that goes beyond the seen. But in our modern world, the real world, is the seen world, the world you can measure, calculate, etc., etc. We live in a world without windows. G.K. Chesterton put it very simply, most modern people's view of the world 
is like a slightly drowsy middle-aged businessman after a big lunch. That's not the biblical worldview. The unseen is more real, and we need to recover that living appreciation, discernment, relying on the unseen world. Come back to that in a minute. Many American Christians are operational atheists. They may talk of prayer and the supernatural and these things or say certain things in the creed, but day to day they operate like their secular neighborhood does. And we have been shaped by the modern world. I could summarize that by saying the modern world makes evangelism easier but discipleship harder. It makes evangelism easier because with all the choice and change, people are always looking for a better option. There's a new car this year. Oh, look at this fabulous new, whatever it is. People are always looking for the new, new thing. And so they're open, certainly to the gospel. But discipleship and obedient trust integrated with the whole of life, that Nietzsche called a long obedience in the same direction, that is tough. And all of that happens under the impact of modernity. And that's why we can have 70% of America Christians and the Christian influence in America is minimal today. And we can see it distorted by some of the public figures that are claiming to be this, that, and the other in the name of Christ. Modernity has undermined the church. And we need to ask the help of the Lord and the Holy Spirit and our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world who don't suffer from these things to help us recover the integrity and effectiveness of faith. That's the first thing I wanted to put for you. Secondly, be prepared for a war of spirits. What do I mean? You know the famous Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant. His last great essay is called Perpetual Peace. Basically, a great enlightenment tract. Reason will flourish. The sun of reason will rise on the earth and all the conflicts and divisions, especially religious, will disappear. We will have perpetual peace. And it's within our grasp. Incredible essay. It set off the modern peace studies movement. It was behind the rise of the League of Nations. A hundred years later, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous for the God is dead argument, he had a completely different picture in his last work. It's called Eki Homo. And he almost quotes Jesus. And Nietzsche says, we are about to see, I'm quoting, a war of spirits the like of which the world has never seen. Who's closer to where we are today? Kant, perpetual peace, or Nietzsche? A war of spirits and spiritual warfare. Clearly, Nietzsche. You can see this in the modern search for a world order, which is part of something that would be incredibly important for the world and for the gospel. We have chaos in the world today. This administration has led to a drastic weakening of America. There are really only three options, as people like Kissinger point out. We can see a renewal of what's called the balance of power approach, which Europe and then the West has had for several hundred years, but it broke down in the 20th century in the world wars, and now America is so weak she's no longer the balancer. So that option doesn't look strong. Well, second option, Kissinger says, is a new emerging form of what's always been in the history, an empire. Well, that wouldn't be very good for the world, but who might be the candidates to be an empire? 
China maybe, Iran would like to be, ISIS would really like to be, but please God, they can't be. That would be horrific for the world and for freedom. But the third option, Kissinger and others point out, is a cataclysm of failed states. We look at the horror of Syria, or the beginning of the horror of Libya, and you can see evil forces which surely cannot be understood, let alone grappled with, unless we take seriously a war of spirits. We're up against something far deeper than economic problems. And the administration saying that some of these people who are radical, they just have got economic deprivation. What absolute nonsense. There is evil walking the earth in profound supernatural forms. And a war of spirits is the only way to understand it and certainly to wage war against it. But you can see some of the same problem in our public squares. The word culture war comes from the German back in the time of Bismarck. And his only lasted 10 years, the Catholic Church against the government. America's now had a culture war for 50 years and counting. And I would argue that America has never been more divided since the Civil War. Economically, racially, politically, culturally, ideologically, profound divisions, and there's absolutely no leadership, and there is no vision in this country of anyone who tries to transcend it, and it'll go on further. And it will mean the weakening and the crippling of America unless it's resolved. But saddest of all, you can see this war of spirits in the church. For a generation now, it's been said that anyone who's faithful in any denomination in the church is closer to their fellow faithful in other denominations than they are to the liberals and the revisionists and the heretics and the apostates in their own church. The Episcopal Church leads the way. Never has a church been so liberal, so revisionist, so apostate, and so heretical in its extremes. And much of the main line is hot on its heels. But speaking as an evangelical, the tragedy is how many in evangelicalism have the same crisis of authority and the same miserable arguments from twisting the scriptures. And you can see evangelicalism has a kind of amiable accommodationism that is almost in meltdown in parts of the faith. I am proud to be an evangelical. It is not cultural. It is not political. It is not fundamentalist. It's actually deeper than Catholic and deeper than Orthodox of the capital O. Evangelicals are those who define themselves and their faith and their lives by the good news, the evangelion, the good news of Jesus, and he preaches the good news of the kingdom. And we're the followers of Jesus who want to get as close and be as faithful as we can be to what Jesus was proclaiming. That's evangelical. And you look at what's happening today and you can see this awful meltdown. And surely there's a war of spirits even in the church of Christ itself. I had dinner with a Catholic cardinal a few years ago. Dinner was about religious freedom. We had a wonderful dinner. And at the end of it, he got up and he said to me, knowing I'm an Anglican, he said to me, tell me about the crisis in the Episcopal Church. I said to him, a bit late in the day, we were standing up and I wanted to get out, and I said to him, sort of half-joking but seriously, 
there's a very profound crisis, but you had your Borgia popes. Anyone who knows the history of the Catholic Church, Alexander VI, murder, corruption, bribery, incest. He had children by his own children, and he was the pope. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please partner with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.